All right, a reading from uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. It's page 1159 in your pew Bible. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. O God, pray that we would know your light today, that we would fill our hearts strangely warmed by you. Pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all our hearts, would be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So right now, if I asked you, where are you, how might you answer? There actually be a lot of answers, right? Some of you would say, I'm in Los Altos, California. Others might say I'm at the 1030 service at Foothill Covenant Church. Some of the more exacting types among you would say I'm in the West Third pew on the fifth, fifth, uh, you know, fifth aisle down. Uh, or if you're really kind of nerdy, you could give the coordinates, the longitude and latitude. Anybody know that? It's actually 37 degrees uh, north by 122 degrees west. I'm not nerdy or anything. I just happen to know that. Uh, it's a question, right? Where are you? You can answer that, way, uh, that question many ways. Uh, and be correct in many ways. In fact, on your phone now, if you have a smartphone with GPS, you can follow where you are with like a blue dot. You can actually walk around and and track your progress. You can know where you are at all times these days. We've developed a lot of methods uh, of putting boundaries uh, with, with language and technology of location. But what if these are insufficient for discovering our true location? Is there another way we can ask Where are you? A different way of asking. I think there is. Not as kind of where are you geographically or physically, but where are you living from? Where are you? Where's the place your heart has its roots? Where does your soul find its texture? I think we all have a location, a non-physical home uh, that we live out of. 
This location gives meaning to where we've been, where we're going, and ultimately how we'll act. This where are you question is a tough one to answer. Um, it's actually also the first question in scripture ever given. God asked Adam after he had uh, eaten of the forbidden fruit, where are you? Of course, it's not that God couldn't find Adam, that Adam was really good at hide and seek or something. But Adam needed to hear that question, where are you? And I think God asks us that same question too, to re- be revisited time and time again, where are you? Uh, to be clear, where are you? It's a different question than who are you? And this is important. The where question, where are you question, will actually determine the who question. Where we are living from in a non-physical sense will, we, will determine who we are and how we'll act. Um, and this question, the where are you question, is the driving question in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, Paul gives over and over the answer to the where are you question. Uh, for the disciples of Jesus who live in Ephesus, their location is in Christ. That's where they live. This letter is like a big map titled The Land of In Christ. Before we zoom in on our, our text for today, um, let's take a quick survey of this geography in Ephesians just to give you a sense of how pervasive this In Christ language is. Uh, and you can follow along in, in, in your pew Bibles if you like it. I'm going to be kind of running through here. First, in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, uh, pay attention to the in language. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Then in verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Then verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. Verse 11, in him, in Christ, we were also chosen. Verse 13, you're starting to get the theme here, right? And you were included, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And he continues on through chapter 2, verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Everything happens in Christ. Verse 10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 2.13. Now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 2.15. His purpose was to create in himself, in Christ, one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. Goes on and on. Chapter 3, another example, 3.12, reads, In him, in Christ, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. And then finally, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 8, from our text today, uh, it reads, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. That's just a sample of 
this geography of in Christ. This is where our life happens, in Christ. Uh, as we can gather uh, from these verses, for Paul, the reality of being in Christ is the deepest of realities. Being in Christ is a more powerful sort of belonging than one can have with their nation, with their family, or even any sort of affinity group. This is their defining locale. This is their identity in Christ. It doesn't mean they're not in Ephesus, or they're not in the Roman Empire, or not uh, in prison, even. Um, But alongside that, the deeper reality, the spirituality, is that they are located in Christ. This is their atmosphere. It's their environment. It's the deepest and most enduring of all places. And Christ is also where the believers find unity, as Hans-Erik talked about last week, um, with with other believers in Christ, whether they be Jew or Gentile. It's in Christ that the unity, unity is found. No matter what ethnicity you are, there's unity in Christ. Uh, there's belonging there. They possess unity. Not, it's not direct person to person. It's actually mediated through Christ, uh, this unity. Can somebody draw me a diagram of this, though? It's kind of hard to imagine, isn't it, this being in Christ? I mean, it's kind of a mystical thing. Um, and maybe it's hard for us in an age that doesn't really give much credence to uh, the non-physical to find purchase for these sorts of ideas. It's easier for me to know that I'm in church right now than it is to look around among you, look at each other, and, and think that uh, if, if we're believers in Christ, if we follow Christ, that we are actually in Christ together, and that actually supersedes. That's a deeper reality than the fact that we're gathered in the same physical space. Kind of hard to wrap your mind around. It's helpful for me to grasp, uh, helps in grasp it when I, when I realize what being in Christ is not. Let's start with that angle. So being in Christ is not just an intellectual concept. It's not something we imagine in our minds. Like I can imagine that I'm in Hawaii right now. It's a really nice thought. I, I like imagining that. But that's, that's not what being in Christ is. And being in Christ is not just an emotion like being in love. Being in Christ isn't dependent on how we think or feel. Um, again, in Christ is a spiritual reality. And when I say spirituality, what I mean is that it's a non-physical, invisible reality. Um, we enter into that reality through faith through trust in Christ. And, um, and this is huge. Though it's invisible and non-physical, this does not mean it doesn't have implications for how we live in the body. It has huge implications for how we live in the body. This is how spiritual realities always work. Everything we do in the body uh, has its root in a spiritual reality. Perhaps the best image we have for imagining what it means to be in Christ is the sacrament of baptism. And this has been with us since the very beginning. A baptism is a physical representation of the spiritual reality of being in Christ. In baptism, in a demonstration of one's faith in Christ, one's immersed underwater and dies to old self and sin, and is raised out of that water to become a new creation in Christ, marrying Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf. And actually, right before our text, in chapter 4, um, Paul uses this baptismal language. He writes to the Ephesians, You were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lust, 
and to be renewed in, your, in the spirit of your minds and to clothe yourselves with the new self created according to the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. To be in Christ is to be clothed with the new self. It means to live anew in the power and presence of God who has brought us into the sphere of his life. And it's not just for the future, it's here and now. This is at the center of what we're going to discuss today. Because we're in Christ, everything changes. As we live in Christ and his love, the more uh, we'll take on the loving character of God. We, we, we begin to become like the one in whom we live. Paul writes of this dynamic in chapter 5, verse 1. We are to be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So this may be a bit of a mystical idea, but it's actually a pretty well-established human truth that we become like those that we're around. Um, you see this with kids all the time, right? I see these tribes of kids running around, speaking their own kind of language, dressed in their own kind of clothes. Um, and, and you actually see it in us, too. Jill and I, we lived in North Carolina for three years. And uh, they, kind of, they talk kind of funny out there. <laughs> Um, especially in the rural churches where I did some of my summer internships. I felt like I needed a translator sometimes. Uh, but a funny thing happened. You know, after, after a couple of years there, I started to pick up some North Carolinian. Uh, and it wasn't a conscious thing. It just kind of happened. Uh, I knew a real change had, had, had happened when, uh, in asking friends to come over for a barbecue, I said, y'all want to come over and grill some burgers? And uh, I commented, I was like, what was that? Where'd that come from? But we, be, we, uh, we become like those who are around. And Jill picked up some North Carolinian, too. She might could share it with you if you ask nicely. Uh, this is an imperfect analogy for what it means to be in Christ, but it demonstrates the principle of how belonging shapes behavior. Uh, another analogy of the transformative effect of a location is light. And this is one that Paul actually uses in our passage for today. Paul reminds the Ephesians that they are to live as children of light. In 5.8, Paul writes, For once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. We are light because the Lord is light, and our location is in him. If we are in the light of Christ, how can we not be lit up with that light? If I'm exposed sunlight, say in an open field, I can't help but be visible in that light. I can't tell the light stop or the sun to stop shining. Um, if I'm immersed in light, it will necessarily reflect off of me. This is the way, the way light works. Um, this is also what it means to be in Christ. If we have submitted ourselves to Jesus and put our life in his hands, our life should more and more reflect the very character of his life. And in this way, we're more like the moon than we are the sun. Um, the moon doesn't have its own light. I know this may be shocking to you. I just discovered this like last year, right? <laughs> the moon's light's not really its own. It's just the, the sun's reflected light, as we learned in grade school. Um, and of course, when the light is on the moon, even though it's not its own light, it does have its own kind of glory, right? The sun helps the moon, in a sense, become more fully what it is. So too with the light of Christ. We're most certainly not Jesus. Let's get that straight. 
But the more and more he, he, we allow him to shine upon us, um, the more ourselves we become in our, indiv- indiv- in, in our individuality. Uh, we become who we were created to be. Like the moon, we may have some craters and some scars, but still there's beauty because of the light of the Lord. Uh, and this beauty will be, de- be demonstrated in our lives in what Paul calls, in verse 9, the fruit of the light, which is found in all that is good and right and true. Um, and being in Christ as children of light also means to avoid stepping out of that light to take part in the unfruitful works of darkness. As we've been discussing, what one does in the body is a symptom of where one is, either in the light or out of the light. And this is crucial. Behaving a certain way doesn't earn or secure a place in the light. This would be like the moon having to shine to earn the sun's light. It's impossible. For followers of Christ, belonging always precedes behavior. And location determines life. It always begins with God's overture of grace toward us. Remember Ephesians 2.4. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he has loved us, even when, even where we were dead through our trespasses, made, up, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. Being in Christ is God's gift of love. You can only accept or reject it. Taking part in the works of darkness, uh, in, here in, in chapter 5, Paul names fornication and greed, Uh, as examples, has to turn away from the light. These behaviors indicate one is living in a location that is not Jesus Christ, a different sphere, a different world. And it's telling that Paul links these things with idolatry, because that's really the best way to describe them. Instead of looking to God to satisfy our desires, we look to an idol, whether it be sex or money. We look to it for gratification. And just to clarify a little bit as we look at chapter 5, uh, sexual immorality, or uh, translating the NRSV as fornication, basically what that means is, is sexual activity outside of the context of marriage. And greed is pretty much self-explanatory. It's the excessive desire of things, or of the power to acquire things. Like People can be greedy for money, for money's sake, for the potential that money offers. Um, both of these things are idols because they give the illusion that, you know, they're, they're illusion that things or people can be used as ends in themselves. We bow before an idol because we believe it will give us what we want. We believe an idol will give us meaning and freedom. And here's the key. We end up enjoying created things in themselves instead of enjoying God, the creator, and being thankful for the things he has given and appointed to us. And there are reminders all around us in our own lives how fornication and greed can come to enslave us. Become, uh, we become addicted to the sort of illusory power of sex and stuff. And the sad part is that the things we hope to possess, they end up possessing us, demanding from us our life and our soul, our hope, our peace. This is the path to misery. Of course, sex and money can be wonderful things if they're, uh, if they're lived out within the proper boundaries uh, God has provided for us, which for sex is marriage and which for money is generosity. Um, within those boundaries, we learn that sex and money are not ends in themselves, but means by which to enjoy God. That's why Paul says, 
let there be thanksgiving. An attitude of thanksgiving is one that receives life as a gift from God. Instead of trying to squeeze all the pleasure out of sex and money, the thankful person realizes and recognizes that God has given them all things. He says, what God has given is good, and what God has given is enough. This passage is difficult. I think it really challenges us. And there's a verse in here that may, as you look at it, may make you a little bit nervous. Look at verse 5. Be sure of this. No fornicator or impure person, or one who is greedy, that is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. These are nerve-wracking verses, because we know that most of us, if, if not all, have been guilty in one of these areas or are guilty in one of these areas. Spoke with a uh, a young woman a few years back who had pointed out this verse to me in particular. She was terrified by it. She felt that for her this was sure condemnation. And frankly, these are difficult and challenging words, especially for us. We live in a culture where illicit sex and greed are almost elevated as virtues. I don't want to take the punch away from these warnings. These are hard words. But let's be sure that we know what they're actually saying. Paul writes that uh, uh, no fornicator or impure person or anyone who's greedy has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Paul writes in the present tense, has any inheritance. I think what Paul's saying is that by virtue of living a life of fornication and greed, it's obvious that these persons are living in a different kingdom than God's. They've forsaken their location in Christ for whatever paltry inheritance they're currently receiving from their son. The sun's still shining. It always will be. They've they've turned away from it. The word for inheritance here in Greek is kleronomia, and it's all over Ephesians. Here and and elsewhere in Ephesians, we've got to remember that um, inheritance doesn't just suggest a future reality to come, but actually is used to describe a present reality and the present availability of the kingdom of God that's at hand. In other words, Paul's just stating what's, what's true here. When one's living a life of sexual immorality and greed, they're choosing a different inheritance than what's offered in Christ. I don't believe for a moment he's suggesting that there is an opportunity for repentance and healing. Don't read condemnation to what in reality is just a warning. The good news of Jesus Christ is that in him, God's light is shining toward all of us. It is now and always will be. He wants us to take possession of that good inheritance he has laid out for us. For, uh, he's laid before us in Christ. He wants us to be able to live as children of light. The question is whether or not we'll choose it. We have to step out from the shadows and let that sunshine wash over us. And the door's wide open. Um, one, of our, one of Evelyn, our daughter's first words was sunshine. Uh, she says it really cute. She loves sunshine. Maybe she didn't get a lot of it when we were living in Portland. Maybe that's why. Um, but when it was sunny in the wintertime, sunlight would stream through her window and create like a little square, a little patch of sunshine on the carpet in her room. And when she would see it, she would get really excited. And she would say, sunshine, and, and run and, and jump and kind of roll around in that light and that warmth and just laugh and enjoy the sunlight washing 
all over us, over her. Um, and that's what we should be like as well, right? to let ourselves run with abandon to that patch of sunlight streaming through in Christ. To let everything about us, everything about us become illuminated by him. What stops us from that? Is it fear or shame? What better place is there? What better inheritance is there than the love and acceptance and new and eternal life that's in Jesus? He calls to all of us like he did to the Ephesians. Sleepers awake, rise from the dead, and I will shine on you. You'll never have to be alone. Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, There is no object so foul that intense light will not make beautiful. I'm not sure what Emerson meant by that. But I know that there is no object so foul that Christ and his light will not make beautiful. This is the promise to us. Everything can be illuminated by Christ. Everything, no matter what, can be made beautiful through him. But we turn our faces to it. Let's pray. Lord, I confess and admit it's difficult to conceive of the reality that we are in you right now. Teach us how to live in this reality so that living and finding our life in you, our life would take on your character of sacrificial love. And Lord, I pray by the power of your spirit that those of us who are afraid of the light, afraid of its, of its exposure, would know your grace and love that longs to shine in all of our lives. For I pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.